uh, we're talking about union with Christ. And I'll just say personally, I, um, I never really learned anything about this doctrine. I had heard the term maybe in my 20s in my systematic theology class. We may have spent two minutes on union with Christ. Um, and then I was at a conference about a year and a half ago, and I had worked... I mean, I'd work from 6 in the morning till 1 o'clock at night for four days in a row. I'm just like nonstop working at this conference. And it was over, and I felt so relieved. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to reward myself. I'm going to go buy myself a book to read for pleasure. <laughs> and so um, pleasure reading for me is, is a little bit different. So I bought this book on Union with Christ. Um, and it's called uh, One with Christ. And basically, it looks at how um, salvation, it's by uh, Marcus Peter Johnson, and uh, it's published by Crossway. And it looks at how, um, you know, in the, when you talk about salvation in Christianity, the core element within salvation is union with Christ. Um, you know, if I were to ask people here, some of you who might be on the, on the Christian nerdy side in terms of just love your theology, what is the primary thing that the Apostle Paul talks about as it pertains to salvation? Does anybody have a, a guess or a suspicion of what it is? Justification? Yeah, justification. Everyone would say justification by faith alone. Paul talks about that extensively when we talk about you know, the Reformation and justification by faith alone and grace alone. We you know, are often you know, citing Romans chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 2 and Philippians chapter 3. But Paul talks about union with Christ. He references union with Christ eight to ten times more than he references uh, justification. And so when I'm talking about justification, there are all these different parts of salvation. Um, there's, you know, God calling you, and there's what we call regeneration. That's the Holy Spirit bringing you to life. And there's justification, which is God uh, forgiving your sins and then making you righteous. And there's adoption. That's God the Father adopting you as a child. Uh, there's sanctification, which is where you're you know, transformed more into the image of Christ. And there's glorification, which is heaven. So these are all kind of elements of salvation. But the tie that binds, the, the thing that holds them all together, um, is union with Christ. And so what uh, I'm going to talk about what it is uh, some today. But the things I kind of want you to come away with are, one, an understanding of what union with Christ is in a basic sense. Um, two, um, I, I want for you, when you read Paul's letters in particular, I want you to be able to see union with Christ pop off the page. See how frequently it's referenced and you like, I never, I never knew. This was not, not until like a year and a half ago that I realized, holy cow, like when he says in Christ or in Jesus Christ or with Christ or with him or in the Lord, in, you know, in the Lord, he is talking about this reality that Christ dwells in me and I dwell in Christ. Um, so that's something I hope will happen. I hope you see how intricately God has considered and designed and orchestrated your salvation. And, um, and the big thing I hope you understand is the intimate and personal nature of Christian salvation. I think it's critically important. This was a thrust of Marcus, uh, Marcus Johnson's book because he says that in a, particularly in American Christianity, uh, evangelical Christianity, we've reduced salvation to something that's transactional. It's like a formula. It's like Jesus did X, so you put your faith in Jesus, and that equals you go to heaven. And it's and it's like you know it's really almost like a, you know a basic algebra formula, X plus Y equals go to heaven. 
You know, and that's it, you know, and, 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 you know, in the Bible, when it does talk about salvation, it does use what we call forensic terms, like legal terms. It uses accounting terms. Paul uses, you know, language both from the, from the legal world and from the accountancy to describe justification. That's a helpful image. Um, but what we see is the predominant language is that of, uh, is really marriage language, language of deep intimacy. And so, so those are some of the hopes here. So um, if you're not particularly... Uh, if you're kind of new to church or not, you haven't really studied the Bible very much, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus on Paul. And Paul is one of the primary writers in the New Testament. He wrote um, everything from Romans to Philemon, so Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1st um, and 2nd Thessalonians, Titus, the two Timothys, all that. And, um, and so uh, you're, you're gonna, most of what we're going to cite comes from Paul. The... Um, so, with Paul, starting with Paul, um, Paul had two major questions that he was, he was trying to handle. By the way, we don't have a ton of people here, so along the way, if I am not making sense, because this, this is very abstract stuff, please, please give me a pump the brakes, like, what are you talking about? Or do this, like, you're, no, you're back, you're back in your seminary class, give me a, give me a sign. Um, <laughs> But anyhow, so Paul had two primary questions that he was trying to answer. He was first trying to make sense of what does the Christ event mean. By Christ event, I'm talking about Jesus coming, him living, him dying, him rising, him ascending. That's the Christ event. All the, basically, all the activity of Jesus Christ in his incarnation through his ascension. And so what Paul was saying is, you know, we had a, a good partial sense of salvation. We had a good partial sense of you know, the history of redemption through the Old Testament, but we didn't have the full picture. And now that Jesus has come, Jesus is the full picture. Like, he is, um, he is the pinnacle. He, um, he is the full revelation of who God is. He, you know, he says in Colossians that he is the very image of God. Um, the author of Hebrews says that he's the exact representation of God. So, Basically, there's nothing more that needs to be revealed about God. We have seen everything we need to know about God in the person of Jesus Christ, and we have seen everything we need to know about reconciliation with God and redemption through Jesus Christ. We've seen everything we need to know about the future because Christ is the final event. His coming, first coming and second coming, those are, that's the final chapter of human history. And so Paul is trying to communicate in his letters um, he, he uses this term, when the fullness of time had come. And that means basically, we have seen it all. The mystery has been solved. And if you want to see the mystery to all questions related to the spiritual realm and redemptive history, it's in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? So that's question number one that he's trying to answer. What does it mean? And that's his answer. He's the answer to the mystery. The second thing he is trying to answer is, okay, so Jesus has done these things in the Christ event. <laughs> Well, how does that apply to me as an individual, right? I mean, I think it's something, especially if you grew up in the church, that we take for granted. That, you know, let's, let's think about the physics of this, or the metaphysics of it, as it may, may be, of there is a man, uh, you know, a poor Jewish rabbi who lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago, who, who claimed he was the anointed king of God, who claimed that he was God himself, claimed that he had come to die for the sins of the world, and he is executed under the Roman government, and uh, he dies. And then, you know, 
the historic claim is that he rose from the grave. That's the claim of the apostles, that they saw this guy die, they had totally abandoned the cause, and now they're all on board to the point of death because they saw him rise from the dead. And, they, and they're proclaiming forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God comes through this man, Jesus Christ. Okay, here I am in 2016 in Birmingham, Alabama. How is what happened with this guy you know, over 2,000 years ago, how does this apply to me? You know? And Paul's answer to that question is union with Christ. Um, that is the way that he explains how the things that Christ has done like for God and with God actually apply to my soul, actually apply to my life. And, um, and so we'll look at that. Um, uh, we'll look at, you know, that's what we're really going to primarily focus on here. So some of the basics of union with Christ. This is what you have to do when you forget to print out your notes. Uh, let's go back up here. There we go. Okay. The, the best explanation or definition of union with Christ is um, presented by this first century Christian theologian known as <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth. No, haha. Um, but Jesus says in John 14, 20, he says, In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. In that day you will know that I am in the Father. So Jesus is saying, I'm in the Father. So you know, this is very Trinitarian language, um, that he dwells in the Father. And he says that you, like he's talking to the disciples, you dwell in me. You are in me. And then I am in you. So Jesus is saying, I am like in your soul. This is you know, very mystical. Um, but this is the core definition of what union with Christ is. Is that the reality that in some mysterious way that we don't understand, done through the Holy Spirit, um, that when a person becomes a Christian... They dwell in the soul of Christ, and Christ dwells in their soul. Um, I know this is, you know, very um, this is very kind of uh, very spiritual language. It's very um, hard to understand. What to, you know, and it's and it's good to understand um, what this is not. Um, what this is not is kind of Oprah Winfrey, New Age panentheism of like. God is in all of us. Well, it's true that we're all made in the image of God. That is true. And all people have dignity. But um, it's not this idea that God is in everything. You know, like God is in the, the tree and God is in the, the bumblebee and God is in the clay and God is in me. It's not that at all. It's, it's much more defined and discreet than that. Um, it's also not uh, kind of the Buddhist sense of oneness. Um, where in Buddhism, like you become the idea is for you to become one with God to a point that your identity is completely vanquished. Your, your individual identity goes away and you are just kind of absorbed into, you are absorbed into like the matter of the higher being. It's not that because you maintain your individual identity, but you're still one with God. Um, it's also not what you call deification, which is a uh, kind of a mystical heresy of the Eastern church, which means like you yourself become God. That's kind of that's what Mormons believe too. Um, it's not that. Like you're, you, know, you do kind of gain an access to the life of the Trinity because you are in Christ and Christ is in the Father and so therefore you have a participation in the Trinity but you're still a human being with an individual identity. You're not, you're not now 
a part of the Trinity as, a, as like a God. So it's not those things. Um, the best image to describe what union with Christ is and is what the Bible uses, and that is that of marriage. It says that, you know, to a man and a woman, two complementary people, they become one. Now, there's still two people, but in a mystical sense, in like God's eyes, spiritually, they are one. And so, and it's funny, because like marriage... Uh, union with Christ was not invented to help us understand marriage. <laughs> marriage was invented to help us understand our union with Christ. And I, I, don't think, um, I don't think Christians have done a very good job of this in the kind of marriage culture wars. Um, because Christians have fought, have fought the culture war on a moral level. Rather than talking about, um, rather than talking about how core to our salvation, how core to our existence union with Christ is, and how marriage is a representation of that, um, and and it's a beautiful, like, sacred thing. Uh, anyhow, I'm not going to go down that road too far, but I just went down just enough. Um, so, anyhow, so with that being said, to get to how kind of, um, to, to how, like, mysterious and difficult union with Christ is, but also how cool, how cool it is, Colossians 3, 1 through 3, it says, um, if then... Sorry, quick time out. Anytime you're reading Paul and you see the language in Christ or in Jesus Christ or in him or in the Lord or with Christ or with him, that is a reference to union with Christ. That is a reference to Christ dwelling in you and you dwelling in the soul of Christ. So here it says, if then you've been raised with Christ, uh, again, that being a union with Christ idea, um, seek things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. And then the next verse is, um, For uh, you have died and are hidden with Christ in God. Okay, and so it's like, let's break this down. It's saying that Jesus is in heaven, and you have been raised with him. Like you are in union with him in heaven. In some mysterious way, you dwell in his soul up there. So somehow, you know... Oscar and Daniel and Aaron uh, <laughs> are in the soul of Christ in heaven. That's crazy. That's crazy. But it's true. And it's, I mean, it's really, it's very intimate. It's very cool. Um, and then at the same time, Christ, even though he's in heaven, he dwells in our heart. And, you know, if we try to think about this within, uh, you know, human terms, like, it just doesn't work. You know, like, this, our, our, our thinking is like is very limited, and we just this is one of those things where I just have to say like I don't get it, but I'll be darned it is all over the place in the Bible as you'll see and it's just it's, it's just something true, and just because I cannot understand multivariable calculus, and just because I made a 42 on my basic calculus test in my freshman year at Wake Forest, doesn't mean it's not doesn't mean that you know multivariable calculus isn't true, and that you know there are really smart people for whom it's really easy. Um, I would just put some of these dynamics of union with Christ in that category. Just because we can't put our mind around it doesn't, doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't say that this is the reality of our relationship with God. So, um, moving on, uh, give you a sense here of how much union with Christ is all over the place. Goodness gracious, come on now. Sorry. Um... Let me see here. Yeah, excuse me one second. 
So Romans chapter 2. How many people here are familiar with, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2. How many people here are familiar with Ephesians 2? Anybody here, you know, read it a lot? It's kind of one of those core, one of those core, um, core verses to Christian salvation. We're back. Come on back. Yeah, let's do it this way. Okay, great. Sorry, guys. All right, so uh, I'm going to read this. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, um, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Okay? So a lot of times when people are talking about salvation by grace alone and faith alone, you know, the core of Christian salvation, that you're not saved by your good works or being morally competent, but purely by the mercy and grace of God, um, people will look at this text, right? And they'll use this as a text to cite justification, rightly so. But what you see when you read through through this is that union with Christ is cited six different times in these several verses, just in five verses. So, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love for us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So again, citing this reality, I'm in Christ, Christ is in me. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him. You were raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's three references to union with Christ in one sentence. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, in union with Christ. So think about that. So in the coming ages, how, does he, how is it that he shows his immeasurable riches to us? It is through union with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your doing as a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship created in union with Christ for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, so just to give you a sense of how prevalent and how primary this theme is, particularly in Paul, it's referenced 160 to 210 times. Um, it's just it's debatable because sometimes people will say, ah, I don't know when he says faith in Christ, if that's really referenced union with Christ, or sometimes when Paul talks about doing things through Christ, people debate whether that's a reference to union with Christ or not. But anyhow, anywhere from on the low side of 160 to 210, that's a lot. Um, all right, so, and I've already talked about this. What's the best image? I mean, hey, um, our, our favorite Episcopalian brother and sister, right? Um, and so, anyhow, so there are three phases of union with Christ. All right, this is, this is getting, this becomes more and more difficult to explain. But here's the thing, is that, you know, when I'm talking about union with Christ now, I'm talking about what we call present experiential union with Christ. That's the reality, you know, it's, and, and it's funny because, you know, hey, I don't know how many people grew up here in an evangelical type setting where if you're like four or five or six and a season's getting a little smirk, a good Briarwood child. Um, <laughs> you know the language, Susan knows the language of you ask Jesus into your heart, right? It's actually a very, you know, very much consistent with like union with Christ emphasis in theology. But, you know, um, when we think about, you know, asking Jesus into our heart, that's, 
We're talking about present experiential union with Christ, this like joy that Christ is actually in my heart. Um, but here's the thing, is this, this uh, language of union with Christ is actually used um, in history, like way before we were born. And so that's what we're going to look at, is we're going to look at how, in some mysterious way, Paul claims that we are unified with Jesus Christ in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension. And so the image I'm going to use, and John Harper's told me this isn't a very good image, but I'm going to try my hardest, is the idea of um, the analogy of a woman carrying a baby. And so, you know, if you think about it, uh, uh, I, I, know, I know people who, before their children were born, they were like saving for their college, their, you know, saving for their college, or they were saving up for the medical bills, or saving up for the nursery, you know. And so even before, like, there was even a fetus in the mother's womb, you know, this child in some way was kind of in, in, the, in the mother and the father's heart. Um, and then, you know, a, a child's conceived, and for nine months, the baby is totally unconscious, right? The baby's in the womb, growing, developing from a little cell, you know, until a, into like a seven, eight, nine pound, God help us, uh, you know, actual baby, you know? The baby, I mean, do, do any of us remember our development in the womb? No, not at all. We're totally unconscious of it, right? But, um, but the mother is very aware of it. And, you know, the mother's body um, is doing all kinds of things, you know, to bring this child from that to a baby that can, that can eat, you know, right when it's delivered. And so this is, this is kind of the analogy I'm going to use to kind of talk about um, predestinarian and uh, historic redemptive union with Christ. That before we were even born, um, we were in the heart of God. Before the foundation of the world, we were in the heart of God. And when Jesus was living, it was as if we were a baby in his womb that he was carrying through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, and through his ascension for the sake of our salvation. That gives me chills. I've definitely got the chill bumps going on right now. Just to think about how personal and how intimate uh, and individually important our salvation was to God, such that he is carrying us around. That's the message that Paul gives us. So when we're talking about, you know, actually I spelled that wrong. Might be. I know y'all are all like, come on, Cameron. We saw this. Uh, we saw this from a long way off. Um, this language of predestinarian versus redemptive historical, it's uh, by a theologian named Robert Gaffin, and um, this is how he breaks it down. But we think about, Paul uses this language of union with Christ, even when he talks about God conceiving of our salvation before the foundation of the world. He says in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before time even began. He gave us in union with Christ before the ages began. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, there is universally considered a union with Christ phrase. So think about this. This is saying like you were in God's heart 
I mean, in a real way, which I, we don't understand the nature of it. It doesn't make any sense to us. Before, before the foundation of the world, it's totally amazing. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Okay, so now, so I'm just going to, I'm, I'm actually running out of time. Um, this is going by really fast. Um, but anyhow, so what we're going to look at now is uh, texts that kind of cite his historic redemptive uh, union with Christ. And so this basically refers to when Jesus Christ came to earth, like the Christ event. When he came to earth, when he lived, when he died, when he rose, when he ascended, how we were unified with Jesus in that. He says in uh, Romans 5, for, and this is in relation to incarnation, for if because of one man's trespass death reigned, through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. For as one man's obedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So it's this idea that through the one man, like we were unified with Christ in his life. Now, in his death, Romans chapter 6, we were buried, therefore, with baptism into his death. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we know that our old self was crucified with him. So here Paul is saying that when Jesus died, like we died with him. Uh, Not in a metaphorical way, but in a real way. Like we were in the heart of Jesus Christ when he died and when he was crucified. He says that again, Galatians 2.20, a lot of people have heard this. And I've known this verse since I was in the seventh grade and went to Disciple Now at, um, at First Baptist. Shawnee, you know what that means? She grew up Baptist too. But um, I have, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So when he says, I have been crucified with Christ, the, like, the Greek verb it is saying, like, I was crucified him when he died on the cross. And that applies to us too. He is saying that we were in the soul of Jesus when he was crucified. Crazy stuff. And then he goes into present experiences, but Christ who lives in me. So Christ now lives in my heart. So he's both referencing the present and he's referencing the uh, historic redemptive. Um, his death, again, we kind of said this for our sake. He, uh, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Death and resurrections, Colossians chapter 2. In him, union with Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So when Jesus was risen from the dead and resurrected, we rose, we were in his soul in his resurrection. It's almost like Jesus kind of carries us through the car wash. Like he is, you know, he, yeah, he is carrying us through the car wash. He is like cleansing us through his life. Um, amazing. And then last, uh, talking about, not last, but talking about in the resurrection, that then you've been raised with Christ. See things that are above where Christ is. Ascension. This is one of the most mysterious verses in the New Testament to me. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So like when Christ ascended, like we ascend in the soul of Christ. Crazy, right? Um, so what? So what? By the way, does anyone have any questions about this so far? Is this, I, I, I um, uh, I've like, I had, I've written a long paper on this, and I've read a million things on this, and I don't really know if what I'm saying is clear. 
Does this, uh, Oscar, can you be honest? Yes, I think it's, I have a question. Though. Yes, okay. So, like, I think in something that struck me in the Episcopal tradition, it seems like there's a lot of talk about, like, our unity with each other. It seems yeah. very important. When Paul talks about, you know, there is one body, there is one union, there is one resurrection, is it a fair thing to say that if we're going to talk about unity with each other, that is only as a byproduct of our mutual union with Christ? That is like, 100%. you're in union with Christ, I'm in union with Christ. That's it. That's the only thing. That is 100% it, yeah. So when we take communion, you know, communion is largely, you know, communion is called communion because that, that term means like oneness you know, a fellowship of oneness. And so in communion, we're celebrating our union with Christ. That's why we, you know, take in the elements. You know, I always think about that when I, even this morning, when I'm drinking the wine and eating the bread, it's like, this is the body and the blood of Christ. um, And it is going into me and it is being diffused within me. And the body and blood of Christ is in me, just like Christ and the Holy Spirit is in me right now. Um, But we're also, the reason we all go up together is because by, as a byproduct of us all being in the soul of Christ, we are one body. But you're right, there is no communion except within the soul of Christ. And, and, and Christ dwelling mutually, like kind of evenly distributed throughout all of us. Yes? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and 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 that's interesting you say that because this is particularly Calvin's drum that he beats. But that is that um, you know uh, when we talk about obe- obeying God's law, or when we talk about you know serving serving people, loving people, the kind of primary um, primary you know, theological image that Paul draws on in particular is that of the union with Christ. And I'll say this to the kids. Kids will, you know, kids will be like, so you're saying that if I put my faith in Jesus, that means that I can like go deal heroin and God will still love me and I'll still go to heaven. I'm like, yeah, that, that is actually true, you know. And then I'll say, but guys, you have to understand that like that your, your salvation is more than just a transaction. Your, your, your salvation is a marriage, and so my wife can say to me, like, Cameron, you can go have as many affairs as you want, and I will not divorce you, you know? And let me ask you, how, how you know, how much, what will the quality of my marriage be um, if I go out and have 20 affairs, right? It's not going to be a very enjoyable marriage, you know? And why is it that I don't want to go out and have 20 affairs? It's because I love my wife, right? You know, we're married. We're people in a relationship. Well, <laughs> that's what your relationship with God is. It's a marriage. And so you're like... Desire for obedience flows out of love and gratitude for the person Jesus, the person you're married to, the person that you're one with. And um, I think that this is all a very, side note, I think it's a very hopeful word to people who are single. Because, you know, marriage, and I'm not saying, I'm not, I, I'm, you know, I'm married, and I'm, I'm fortunate and I'm grateful for that. Um, but it's for someone who's single, um, you know, there is the reality that you are married to Jesus, 
you do have a spouse in Christ. And, um, and yes, it is very nice to have a like human spouse um, that helps you in a tangible way to kind of experience and enjoy what that mystical marriage with Jesus looks like. But it is hopeful to know that, like, like I said before, uh, union with Christ wasn't invented to help us understand marriage. Marriage was invented to help us understand union with Christ. So, so a couple, couple of just kind of like so what's. Um, first thing I would say is just to understand the personal nature of salvation. Always come back to this, this intimacy. Uh, I just think that in the world is very lonely. I mean, so many different phases of life are lonely. If you're a junior high kid, it's a very lonely time of life. If you're just out into the real world, that's very lonely. If you're a parent with young children, very lonely. Um, uh, sometimes marriage can be really lonely, you know, especially when you first get married. Um, because a lot of times you kind of have this alienation from your other friendships, and it's just you and your spouse, and that can be kind of lonely. Um, but to think about the intimate nature of salvation, that God himself dwells in our heart and that we dwell in his heart, um, that is the ultimate comfort to loneliness, um, that you're, you're never alone, um, and you have this marriage-like relationship with God. Um, second thing, and this is something I would say particularly to someone who's not a Christian or someone who's kind of investigating Christianity, is like, have you ever, have you ever heard of love like this? Like, have you ever heard of someone, like, think about this, every single time that Jesus Christ was tempted to sin, which he was, you know, tempted every minute like we are, Jesus said no um, out of loyalty to you, because Jesus was carrying you, and Jesus had to live perfectly for you. And so every single time he resisted temptation, it was a statement of love for you. Like, that is... That is a love that I have not heard of in, in the arts or in my life and personal relationships. That is an incredible love that someone was thinking about your salvation and carrying you before the world began and 2,000 years ago. That, that you were that important to God. That's, uh, that's, that's kind of chill, bumpy kind of stuff. And then finally, if God paid this much attention to you before you were even born... And before, you know, before you were even technically adopted as a child of God, like, I'm just going to tell you, we, this is something for us, especially for us men who are always worrying about retirement or worrying about, like, how we're going to pay the bills or how we're going to prepare for college. Like, if he had that much concern for us back then, he certainly has enough concern for us here and now. Um, and so it's just a comfort for us to revisit, to go back to to help us have peace and to trust, to trust God uh, for the future. So I'll pray for us. If he wants to chitty chat, I'll hang around. All right, Jesus, thanks for, um, thank you so much for your great concern for us, your care for us. And uh, I pray that you would grow in us hearts of deep gratitude. I pray to God that we would all kind of have this uh, joy of knowing that you dwell in us, God, and knowing um, that you carried us like a baby um, thousands of years ago. So we, uh, pray for a good week in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right.